Acts chapter 2, and this morning we're looking at verses 42 to 47, a glimpse of the church in Jerusalem, the newly formed church. And actually, let me begin reading at verse 36, just to set the stage from last week, from the passage before it. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we need you. Lord, we confess this morning our utter need of you. God, we need your Holy Spirit to help us to know Jesus. We need your Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. We need you, Lord, to pour out your grace upon our lives if we're going to live a holy life that's pleasing to you. Lord, we need you this morning to enable us to love one another. Lord, we each come from different places this morning Some of us are facing trials that are stretching us to the breaking point. Lord, we need you. God, we need you to overcome sin. We need you, Lord, in our church. Oh, God, our country needs you. Lord, this world needs you. So, God, we just declare our dependence upon you today. And as we come to your word, we come as as hungry children looking for food from our Father. Lord, I pray that you would, you would fill this church today. Lord, you would meet the needs. I, I, I can't even begin to fathom all of the needs here. But God, I thank you that you see and know every one, that you have more than enough capacity to meet all of our needs. And so, God, we come to you in faith and dependence this morning. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, I'd like you to uh, imagine this morning, think of, bring to mind the people in your life who don't know Jesus, people uh, that, that you're concerned about, people that you love who don't know Christ. 
And then out of that sort of portfolio of people that you can think of who don't know Jesus, I'd like you to just think of one whom you might nominate as least likely to ever be saved. Can you think of a person who just seems so far away, that they're so closed, they're so hostile, they so want nothing to do with your faith? Can you imagine one of those people? Now, imagine this scenario. Imagine out of the blue tomorrow at school or at work or in an email or something, this person reaches out to you and says, hey, so next Sunday I want to come to your church. And, you know, you're you know, trying not to sputter your coffee like, yeah, sure, and I'll be there at 11. I'll meet you at the front door. Wow. And you're really excited that this person would even want to come. You have no clue what has motivated this. You're like, wow, it's a miracle. God is working. But now later in the day you start imagining, what's it going to be like when this person is in my church. And you start to imagine that. You start imagining this person meeting the people in your church. You start imagining this person watching how the people in your church relate to each other. You start imagining this person observing your church worshiping God and, and the way they function together. You start imagining how, this ch- how your church, wherever it is, relates to new people who are in the church and the, the kind of welcome or lack of welcome they might extend. And so the question is, are you still excited for this person to come to your church? You know, have you ever been in a situation like that where, I don't know if that's the right first step? Or maybe, forget, maybe not the church, maybe they come to you and say, hey, I hear you keep talking about this. What do you call it? Growth group? Your Bible study? Yeah, I want to come to your Bible study next week. When is it again? Oh, wow, sure, come to my Bible study. But then you begin to think, oh, my Bible study. Huh. is that going to work? You know, when they see how the people in my Bible study function together, when, when they get a sense of the culture of that group, are they going to want to be a part of that? Or am I thinking, oh, no, this could be a disaster. Oh, because there's that person, and they have that issue, and that person's always doing that, and these people are in a fight, and ooh. Or, or maybe uh, you're in middle school, or you're in high school, and, uh, and someone says, hey, I, some kid at school says, I want to come to your youth group. Would you think, yes, that's the great next step for you to get closer to the gospel, is to come to the youth group? Or would you think, oh, that might not be the best next step in the process? We can be a stepping stone to the gospel, or we can be a stumbling block to the gospel in our Christian community. Have you ever seen either of those? Have you ever been a part of a church or a youth group or a Bible study or a ministry where, you know, you could handle it because you're a mature Christian? You get it. You can deal with all this weirdness. But you wouldn't want to bring someone who wasn't a Christian into it because there's too much dysfunction. There's too much brokenness. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Well, here in Acts chapter 2, we have a glimpse, a snapshot of the first church ever, the church in Jerusalem that was birthed from the first gospel sermon ever after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter called them to repent and be baptized, and 3,000 people were added into the church in one day. It was an amazing move of God's Holy Spirit. It was a, a revival. It was a massive conversion by God's power. And then what you have in verses 42 to 47 is a description of what that church looked like. And, and what we see here is that this was an attractive church. This was the church that because of the the quality and nature of their relationships together, 
They, they, uh, the, the people around them were, were interested. The people around them were intrigued. The church made people want to know more. What was going on there? The, this church functioned as a stepping stone to the gospel of Jesus, not a stumbling stone to the gospel of Jesus. And so I want to look at this church and the way, as it says in the very last verse, the Lord was adding daily to those who were being saved, that they had the favor of all the people. What was it about this church that was like that? We all, we all know that the gospel can be offensive, that people can be turned off by the gospel, and we can't really do anything about that. But we don't want to be offensive in the way that we relate together and live together as a body. And here was a church that was attractive, that was winsome, that was aromatic. And people were were intrigued and they were pressing in to the church. So what was it about them? Well, there's a lot of things describing this church in verses 42 to 47. We, We could kind of go down a list. But let me try to summarize it under two general headings. If, if I can sort of just put this whole church and what it was like under two general categories. Uh, and the, the first one that I would say is that this attractive church in Jerusalem was, first of all, a church that was devoted to the Lord. That's the first thing I see about this church. They were devoted to the Lord. And that's devoted is the key word. Look at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking bread, and to prayer. Or again down in verse 46, it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And that word that's translated there, continued to meet together, is the same word, devoted. They were devoted to getting together. So this was a devoted people. Uh, the one thing you had to say about this church is, man, they were committed. They were serious. This wasn't casual spirituality. This wasn't flippant religion. These people weren't sort of playing at and, and, and diddly-dallying with their faith. They were devoted. They were committed to this. You ever met a person who's devoted to something? Someone who's devoted to a TV show? Like, look, you don't mess with them on Tuesday nights at 9. That's the show. Sorry, I, I got to leave. My show's on in 15 minutes. They're devoted right? Have you ever met someone who's devoted to exercise? Like they're always, you know, well, I can't eat that. No, I got, can't be there. I got to get up at six because that's when I run, you know, my whatever. And, and, and they're devoted. They, they prioritize it. They, they put it at the center. It's at the center of the calendar. Everything else fits around it. It's the big rock in the jar and the little rocks fit around it. And so it was that these people were devoted. Their faith was marked by a serious prioritizing kind of commitment and they were devoted, again, I would say, the first thing is, was to the Lord. They had a, a heavenward, a, a, an upward devotion. They were devoted to God. They were devoted to Jesus. And look, look how it sort of plays itself out. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first way that they devoted themselves to the Lord, was being devoted to the apostles' teaching. So leading the church in Jerusalem, you had the 12 apostles, the 12 guys who had spent three years with Jesus watching him, learning from him. And Jesus sent them out. That's what apostle means, one who is sent. They were sent out by Jesus to be his witnesses in the world. And, and here they were teaching this church. And so the people were devoted. They were committed to. They carved out time. They prioritized being with these apostles to learn from them, to learn what Jesus taught and how he taught it and what Jesus did and how he died and rose again and how his death and resurrection for our sins is, is our salvation. And they learned the gospel. 
How, imagine how awesome that would have been to be in that church. You know, like, oh, so what, what's this church you're, you're going to? Oh, yeah, First Church of Jerusalem. First Church. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, it's good. Well, well, who's the pastor of your church? Well, we've, we've actually got 12 of them. Yeah. There's Peter. He's kind of the senior pastor. And there's James and John. And I don't even remember the others. There's a whole bunch. And, uh, oh, well, where did these guys study? What seminary did they go to? Well, they actually were with Jesus for three years directly with Jesus. So that's where they studied. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. I would love to be in that church. Were those are the guys who are teaching? And then we say, oh, well, we, we can't be devoted to the apostles' teaching today. All those guys are long dead. Actually, we, we have the apostles' teaching. This is the apostles' teaching right here. We don't have the apostles, but we have their teaching. And the guys were, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, not just the apostles. We have in this book the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament scriptures, what they would have called the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. That's what was their scriptures at the time. We have the Old Testament that the apostles taught from and interpreted. We have here the New Testament. We have the, the four Gospels, which are the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus, which the apostles would have been relaying to them. And we have the letters which, in which the apostles tell us how Christians should live together, the, the ethical and uh, theological teaching to the church. We have the apostles' teaching. And so part of being devoted to the Lord means we need to be a people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the Scriptures, to studying it. And so that's what we do. We gather here on a Sunday morning, and you know, what, what are we doing here in church on a Sunday morning? What's our goal here? Well, you could say we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. There's the preaching of the apostles' teaching. There's also the reading of the Bible, and we sing the Bible, and we pray the Bible, and we enact the the gospel through communion and through baptism. We see the, the gospel enacted before us as Jesus commanded and so we're still devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And, and just like the early church, we, we break up into smaller groups. We get into growth groups in each other's homes, and we, we study the Bible together, and, and uh, couples get together, and they say, okay, what about marriage? What does the Bible say about that? And teenagers get together, and they say, what does the Bible say about being a teenager? And how, how am I supposed to honor God as a teenager? And so we're, we're constantly going back to the Bible and saying, what, do this, what does this word say what did the apostles teach? And don't you see that being devoted to the apostles' teaching is how we are devoted to the Lord? That you can't be devoted to the Lord unless you're devoted to the apostles' teaching. You say, why not? Well, because the apostles' teaching is the Word of God. How can I be devoted to God if I'm not devoted to what He says? A basic act of devotion is to listen to what God says and do it. In fact, I would say this. The most basic act of worship that any person can commit, the most simple act of worship is to shut my mouth, to open my ears, to listen to what God says, and then do it. I mean, what is more basic devotion than that? To hear the Word of God and then to do the Word of God, to obey it, to believe it, to trust it, whatever it is. That, that the Word is calling me to do. The most basic act of devotion is to hear God's Word and to do God's Word. It's obedience. Could you imagine a husband who said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm devoted to my wife. I mean, she's always talking, and whenever she talks, I just go in the other room and watch TV. 
but uh, I'm devoted to her. Like, I don't know. Uh, basic devotion is you listen to each other. And if we're devoted to the Lord, we, we want to listen to what His Word says. We, we, we want to take it in and, and accept it and obey it. That's what devotion to God looks like. But it's, it's a two-way street, too. It's not just hearing God's Word and obeying it. It's also us talking to God. You know, you see that at the end of verse 42. So verse 42 says, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the first one. The fellowship and breaking of bread. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the last one is another Godward one, prayer. So it begins and ends with Godward things. We're listening to God's Word, and then we're talking to God. This is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus where we hear His Word and we do what He says, but we also pray and we talk back to God and we, we share what's on our hearts to God, and we, we call out for help to God, and we tell God how much we love Him. It's a relationship that we have with Christ. Now, this should be a theme that we've seen in the book of Acts already. We're going to see it a lot. The early church was really into praying. God's people are really into praying. It's a normal thing. Go back to chapter 1 of Acts, verse 14. We saw it here a couple of weeks ago. This is a story of just after Jesus returned back to heaven. He ascended back to heaven. And it says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And, and that is the same word. They were devoted. They were devoted together to prayer. And so this is basic Christianity, that God's people not only pray and read the Bible themselves, but they get together with other groups of God's people and they are devoted to the teaching of God's Word together, whether in a church service or in a growth group or reading one-on-one with another Christian. And, and we also are praying. We're praying together. We're lifting up requests to God. This is a very normal part of the Christian life, but it, sometimes it has to be learned. Uh, some of us grew up uh, in settings where we never learned to pray out loud. We, uh, we just weren't taught that. You know, sort of like your faith's a private thing. That's not very biblical. Your faith is a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. You know, our faith in Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it was never meant to be private. It was meant to be shared and encouraged among, among other Christians. Um, last Sunday, I was uh, in a Sunday school class, and uh, it was on prayer. Seth taught us, was teaching a Sunday school class on praying for other people. And, uh, and at the end, he said, okay, everybody, break up and pray. You know, and everyone was like, ah. Okay, I guess we'll pray. So people are starting to pray. And, uh, and there was one person who um, I, I could tell she was not cool with us breaking up to pray. And I could read her body language. She was about to bolt. So I just sat right, right next to her. And I was like, you're not going anywhere. So we, like, just pray. Just pray. So we all started to pray. And, and she was like a lot of us, just had never really been taught how to pray out loud. But finally she started praying, and oh, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. It was just her heart full of joy to the Lord, her desires to see people come to know Jesus, her desire to know Jesus more. Just, just had to start. You know, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to have your first time praying out loud. And, and it's so normal for a Christian. It's like a baby crying. Just open their mouth, and it just comes out. It's that relationship with the Lord. And so we all can grow in this. We, we all need to find times and places where we pray together. I've said this before, but be devoted to prayer as a church. Make sure your growth group prays. Make sure your committee meeting prays. Make sure your budget committee or whatever it is, even you're like, well, this isn't really a spiritual meeting. Pray together. 
put aside 15 minutes in your agenda to pray. Can you do that? Just 15 minutes. We're going to pray together. And we're going to keep calling out to the Lord and learning how to share this with each other. Because you see, what the gospel has done to us is it's put us in a relationship with Jesus. We're in a relationship with Jesus. You know, that's what Christianity is. I don't know what you think of a Christianity. Christianity is a living relationship with the living Jesus. And that means we're relating to him. You know, we've had our sins forgiven. Jesus died on the cross. He, he removed the, the animosity between us and God by forgiving our sins and turning away God's wrath. And now we have a right relationship with God. And so let's, let's relate. Let's listen to God. Let's talk to God. And again, that sounds strange because some of us had never thought of faith as a living relationship with Jesus. But that's what it is. And it's through the gospel. And, and when we have a living relationship with Jesus and we're talking to Him and we're asking Him and we're beseeching Him, you know what? He answers prayers. Jesus is real. He answers prayers. There's power. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. This wasn't just a church where they, where they just heard sermons. They, they were listening and they were praying and God was answering. And lives were being changed. In this case, it was the apostles. The apostles were given spiritual gifts to perform miracles. They, they had miracle working power. They, they could say to someone, get up and walk. And the person could get up and walk just as Jesus had been able to do. And, and God still does miracles today. Even if there's no one in our church who has that particular spiritual gift of working miracles, God still works miracles. We pray. Sick people get well. This happens in our church. That's true. This has happened in other churches where you've been. We pray, and people who are in really impossible situations suddenly find a way through. We pray. And people who we think are so far from God, five years later, are sitting next to us in church. We pray. And God turns lives around. We pray and churches become more healthy and become more biblical. We pray because God is still working powerfully through his word and through, through his spirit. The Holy Spirit is real. And so we pray and we ask for God's power to be at work in wonderful and even sometimes miraculous ways that blow our minds. God can do these things in his sovereign will. I'm saying that that kind of church where the people are in a real relationship with the Lord, where they're really listening to his word and they're really talking to him and he's really answering and things are really happening, that's an attractive church. Because the thing that, that I, I think especially today, the thing that unbelievers, non-Christians, whatever you want to call them, people outside the church, the thing they want to know is, okay, is all this Jesus stuff real? Is it real? Or is this just kind of a big group head trip? Is, is this just sort of a big kind of self-deception that we do here in church to give ourselves a coping mechanism to make it through a rough week? Or is like, is there really a Jesus? Is he really risen? Does, does he really answer prayer? Do you really have a relationship with God or is that just language that you use? Is God real? And, and when a church is devoted to his word and devoted to prayer and God is answering prayer and he's moving in different ways, that there's a kind of 
awe-filled electricity in a church like that because the Lord is among them. The Lord is among them. And that's attractive to a jaded, cynical, over-marketed, oversold world that, that doesn't believe anything, that thinks it's all just smoke and mirrors and spin. And we can say, no, no, the Lord is among us. The Lord is among us. We have a relationship with him. You can have a relationship with him. But notice the second characteristic of this church, and a second thing that made it attractive, a second thing that, as it says in verse 47, was causing it to enjoy the favor of all the people. Not only were they devoted to the Lord, not only did they have a living relationship with the living Jesus by hearing his word together and praying together and seeing answers to prayer, not only was that vertical thing going on, but there was also another dimension. Number two, they were not only devoted to the Lord, but they were devoted to one another. There was a horizontal dimension to their devotion. It was not only upwards, but it was also inward. It it was not only toward God as Heavenly Father, but also toward each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you see that in verse 42. Look at it. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and then here's that, that horizontal dimension, and to the fellowship. Fellowship. You know what fellowship is? It's getting together and hanging out. It's being together. Right? They, they were physically together. They physically were in the same place, talking to each other and being in the same place. Notice how often that comes up in this passage. Verse 44. All the believers were together. Verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together. Verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together. You say, well, were they really all together in one place? Well, yeah, they were in the temple courts. It was a huge space. Solomon's colonnade was enormous. It could have have easily held 3,000 people. It was a large open space that God provided for them to be together. Sounds a little obvious, but I don't know if it's obvious today that the church should be together. Because so much of our interaction today, so much of our our communicating and our our connecting is done virtually through electronics. And and in many ways, it has disembodied community. We we don't actually have to be physically together. I mean, we text and we email and we Skype and we Snapchat and we Facebook and we post and we tweet and there's so much interaction today that happens virtually. We, we talk about having communities. You know, you find a bunch of people who have common interests. You know, all of you are into, you know, you're really in, you find a group of people who are really into underwater basket weaving like you are. And so you, you find the online bulletin board of people who are into underwater basket weaving. And then there's, you know, there's posts and there's threads and there's replies to threads. And you say, well, that's my community. That's how people talk on bulletin boards. This, this is my community. We use the language of community. But it's a community where actually I don't know what you look like or who you are, and, and I, don't, I have no connection to you because I'm not together. And, and so we, we've, the, the sense of community has been stretched because our, our togetherness has been sort of forgotten. But people, look. Look at yourselves. You have a body. <gasps> I'm not just electrons flying in space. You can't know me unless you, you see me. We have to be together because I'm a person. I'm not just ideas or posts or words. And you're a person. 
And part of knowing you is seeing you and being in your presence and holding your hand and seeing your expressions. We're, we're embodied creatures. So just to be clear, I'm not against social media. You know, I have Facebook and I do all that stuff too. I'm not some Luddite who's arguing that we need to burn our, our iPads and um, you know, buy 8,000 acres in Vermont and form a commune and, you know, become preppers or something. I'm, I'm not arguing for that. But what I am saying is we have to be careful that, that technology at best can supplement community, but it should never supplant community. It, it, we should never think that that is community. Com- to be in community, you just have to be together. You have to be, and it sounds really obvious, but again, I still think it's obvious today. It's possible for a person today to think, well, you know, I, I watch my, my preacher on TV or on my podcast, and then I, uh, to get my prayers answered, I have a prayer bulletin board where I post things and we pray for each other, and then I have a Christian radio call-in show that I listen to and I hear other people's problems and how those problems are solved, and it's kind of like my growth group, and I kind of, you know, learn there, and then, and then there's another bulletin board, and, and we're all concerned about you know, this, this social issue, and we all give money to it. And so, you know, you're, you're in a Christian community, but you never left your house and never actually talked to anyone. Right? What? Or, or you see an, another trend that, that I've seen in the church that I find very disturbing is this whole idea of multi-site churches. Have you heard of this? Where, where you have one church, but it has like eight campuses, different locations around, and, and so it has lots of different sites that people go to. So, and so maybe it's the preacher, you know, he, he drives around or helicopters, you know, between services. I, unfortunately, I'm not kidding. Um, or or maybe, maybe he preaches one place and he's beamed out to other screens, you know, in other places. And, you know, I just, I just listen to that and I'm like, oh, I'm going to throw up. Like, I, how could I be a pastor to a church of people that I'm not together with? I, I mean, the, the phrase to me, multi-site church, to my ears is an oxymoron because you're not together. <laughs> you don't ever rub shoulders with each other because you're on this side of Metropolis and you're on that side of Gotham and, you know, like, what? You don't, you don't know each other. How are you together? How are you a church? The word church means assembly. You have to assemble. You have to be together. And so this is basic. But not only were they together, not only were they devoted to each other in the basic sense of actually getting together, this is even better. They ate together. I like that. Look at verse 42. They're devoted. They're devoted, committed to food. <laughs> yes. This is my life verse. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. And you say, well, that, that's just talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. I don't think so. Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So it may have also included the Lord's Supper, but I, you know, that phrase, the way it's used in, uh, in literature, it's really just talking about eating together. You know, eating together is so important. I'm sorry. You know, re- re- human relationships are made over food. Human relationships are sustained over food. Human relationships are healed with food. Right? Every great human event, every great thing that happens that we celebrate as human beings, what do we do? We eat. You have wedding feasts, and you have wakes, and you have Thanksgiving, and we eat. 
Because we have bodies and we must feed them or they will die. So when I'm eating with you, I, I'm, there's, a, there's this deep visceral, we're living together because we're both eating together. And, and so, f- so much relationship happens around food. In other cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, to eat together is a profound act of relationship forming. When you eat together, you're not just eating together. We're not just, you know, having a McMeal really fast. We're, we're committing to something. There's something being formed because by eating together, it, it's, a, it's a posture of peace and relationship. But here's the point. These people spent time together eating in each other's homes. They, they didn't just gather with 3,000 people at Solomon's Colonnade, heard some ridiculously good preaching, and then laughed but then they would leave and they would go to each other's homes and they would break bread. They knew each other. They were sharing each other's lives. And if something happens when, when we eat with each other and we spend time with each other, whether or not we're eating, when we spend time with each other in person, you know, it's, it's harder to hide. We get to see each other. We get to know what each other's like. We have to put up with each other. We have to deal with each other. That's the great thing about Facebook. I don't have to deal with anyone. It's awesome. You know, I don't like your posts, hide posts. I don't really, really don't like you, unfriend. And, uh, I don't have to deal with you. That's, how, that's my kind of community, right? But in real community, where you're actually together and you're actually eating meals and you're looking at each other, then like you, you can't hide. And, and now you're going to start seeing my life and you're going to start seeing, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly, of which there's plenty of each. And, and I'm going to start seeing that in you. And now I'm going to start knowing how to pray for you. And you're going to see things in me. And maybe you're even going to see some things in me that shouldn't be there as a Christian. And, and maybe after about three meals or four meals together and we begin to trust each other, you might put your finger on that thing and say, you know, can I ask you a question? You know, you do this and I'm just a little worried about you there. What about that? And I think, well, who's this guy to get involved in my life? I'm going to unfriend him. Oh, I can't. We're eating. <laughs> well, maybe I've got to deal with this thing. That's how it's supposed to work. And then, not only did they, were they committed to being together in fellowship, not only were they committed to eating together, look, they, they shared. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. So they saw each other's needs and they met each other's needs. Some have argued that this was the original commune, that this was communal living, that it was communism of some sort. I don't think that's the case. You know, sometimes groups do this. Cults sometimes do that. You know, sometimes if you join a cult, they're like, you know, you must sell all your possessions and give it to the cult leader and he will distribute as each person has need. That's not what this was. It wasn't like to join the church, you had to sell all your possessions and put it into the pot that somebody distributed. This wasn't communalism. You know what this was? It was just love. They just loved each other. There was not some big organized thing. They just, I I know you. I've been together with you. We've had dinner three times. What? You're sick and you can't work this week? You don't know how you're going to provide? Oh, we'll cook meals for you. I love you. You're my family. We're together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what they were. You you know, what, what do you call a group of people who are together and who eat together and who take care of each other. You know, even non-Christians, people who have nothing to do with the church, experience this in life. There's a type of social relationship where people are together and eat together and 
and take care of each other. You know, we have a word for that. It's called a family. That's what a family does. A family is together, and they eat together. They know each other. They know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they take care of each other. And so, brothers and sisters, we're, we're a family. I want you to hear me very carefully. I'm not saying we're like a family. I'm saying we are a family. We're literally, I know that word gets overused a lot and used wrongly today, but I'm using it intentionally. We are literally a family. Not in a biological sense, but in a more profound sense, a spiritual sense. We're united to Christ through the gospel. We've been brought into the family of God. We've been adopted into God's family. And so, in a profound spiritual sense that is even greater than a biological family, we are now one in Christ, and so we shall be forever. And so, I'm not saying act like a family. I'm saying you are a family. Just lean into it. Just do it because you're a family. Nor am I saying this morning that you all have to be best friends. I'm not saying that. Friends, you know, friends have common interests. Friends have lots of things in common. Friends like to do things together. I'm not saying you all have to be BFFs and whatever. You're not all going to be best friends. You're not all alike. But we're family. And so families, they spend time together and they know each other and they deal with each other even when there's differences. And they, and they help each other because we love each other because we're family. That's what this church was. They were one big family. And, and I think that's going to be such a profound witness in this world, especially nowadays where there is no community, so much less, where, where people are so separated and so isolated, where community is increasingly virtual and disembodied, where families, actual biological families, are being obliterated in our culture by cultural forces, where marriage has been overthrown, where families are falling apart. It, it's, it's really bleak, and I, I think it's only going to get worse. And so, if while the cultural sense of community is, is disintegrating, there's emerging this, this community of people at the church who are really a family, you know, where the, the single people and the married people hang out together. And, and the white people and the black people and the Asian people and the Latino people all hang out together. And 11 o'clock is no longer the most segregated hour in America, at least not in a church like this. And where the old people and the young people learn from each other and the rich people and the poor people go out to lunch together after church, that kind of community, I think it'll just be a wonderful, attractive witness to the world. That's an attractive church. You know, look at the, just get the feel for this church. Look at verse 46. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They're praising God, and as a result, they enjoy the favor of all the people. Even by all the people, that means the people outside of the community of faith. The, the, the people out in the broader community look favorably upon the church because of the kind of culture they have. Even those who don't believe in Jesus are favorably inclined toward them because, wow, these people really know the Lord, they're really devout, and they really love each other. What, what a remarkable thing that is. There's recently a young woman in our church who um, uh, was with us for a while, and she was from a very different faith background and had no exposure to Christianity really until she came here. And uh, one of the things she she said, and I I say this just to encourage you and commend you, but one of the things she said about our church is she said, you know, 
the thing about the church is all the people there seem to be really happy. They seem to be happy. And of course, we're like, what? I've had a bad week. I mean, we've had our bad weeks. But someone came in and said, overall, though, there's joy. There's gladness. There's rejoicing in this congregation. I, I just encourage that she would observe that about you. But that's attractive. Why is that? Why are those people so happy? Hmm, I need to think about this. And so please understand this sermon. I hope when you hear this sermon, you're not hearing, all right, read your Bible more, pray more, hang out more, get in a growth group. Come on, you know, be more like this church. I mean, of course, maybe God's laying on your heart some concrete steps you need to take, but, but it's not like, hey, come on, be more like this church. This is the message I'm trying to say, is that Jesus has saved us that Jesus Christ died for us and he rescued us from our sins and we have been brought into a relationship with him. And we have been brought into a relationship with each other. So all I'm saying is just enjoy it. Lean into it. Live it. It's yours. You already have it in Christ. You are right with God through faith in Jesus and you are a family. And so let's just press in and lean in. And maybe God's laying on your heart some ways that, that He wants you to press in, like He's saying, you know, you do need to get to know some other Christians, or, or you do need to be more serious in prayer, or whatever it is. But, but see that not so much as a guilt trip, like, come on, let's be this kind of church because we've got to grow the church. That's not what the message is. It's Jesus has saved us. We know Him. We know each other. So let's, let's press into what we already have in Christ. The gospel has profoundly changed us, so let's live it out. And let's let the Lord work. As it says in verse 47, the Lord, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because that's an attractive church. God uses the attractiveness of the church as a stepping stone to the gospel rather than a stumbling block. Oh, how I long to be the kind of church member who contributes to this kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our salvation. We, we want to be devoted to you because you have sent your Son to die for us. And you, Jesus, you rose again. Thank you that we have a living relationship with you, and I pray that we as a church would press into that living relationship, that we would be devoted to your word, God, that we would be devoted to prayer. Would you stir up our hearts to want to be devoted together to the study of God's word and to prayer? And God, I pray that we would be devoted to each other. Lord, help us to, to act out our new status as the family of God. Help us to live it and to, to enact it. And Lord, May it be what you said, Jesus, that by this all men will know that we are your disciples, that we love one another. God, that there might be real family love in our church, regardless of the number of people here. We know that love is not dependent upon the size, but it's dependent upon our hearts. And so, God, give us love for each other. Help us to care for each other. Help us to lean into relationships. Lord, help those who, are, who feel like they're on the outside, maybe who feel hurt, maybe who are introverts or shy. God, help those of us like that to lean in more and 
God, help us to take our eyes off of our own issues from time to time and lift up our eyes and see the needs of people around us and ask questions and to to cross boundaries, to relate to people who are different from us in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that there would be a, a wonderful unity that would cross boundaries and that would knit this church together. Oh God, I thank you for the unity that's here, but I pray for more. I thank you for the devotion to you that's here, but I pray for more. And I pray that you would begin that in my own heart. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.